Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. You know, when you think of the good old days in Vegas, you think about Frank Sinatra. The fun of a Sinatra concert, or better yet, a Rat Pack visit, is something that could only happen in Vegas, or at least it seemed that way. Imagine the fun of seeing him now. Well, the closest you can get is seeing Chris Jason's tribute to Frank. And now Chris is back on stage with the Rat Pack is back at Tuscany's, as well as his own solo show all over town. You'll meet him today. Speaking of vintage Vegas, how about an old-style dining experience? You can find some great options here, and your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, is back to explain what's so special about Las Vegas meals from the past. In the second half hour, once again, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. On today's show, you'll meet one of America's greatest Olympic heroes, Mike Ruzioni, the captain of the Miracle 1980 U.S. ice hockey team. But first, let's meet the man who makes you think you are listening to the chairman of the board. Because I've you under my skin and I love you under my skin. Imagine the thrill of seeing Frank Sinatra in concert. As you know, that's impossible right now, but there are some wonderful tribute acts, and one of the very best, of course, is in Las Vegas. His name is Chris Jason, and Chris is with us today to talk a little about it. Chris, you grew up in a place called Little Italy, of course, in Providence, Rhode Island. With that in mind, was Sinatra always an important part of your life from early the early days? Absolutely. There was two things that were in your house on the wall. It was a picture of Jesus Christ and a picture of Frank Sinatra. Yeah, exactly. I can almost see the house, you know. And that music music is so good. But how do you dedicate your life to doing a tribute for that? Because he was so good, and you are one of the very best. But that's not an easy impression. It's not even an impression. It's not an easy tribute. No, it's not. See, basically, in a nutshell, I grew up. Well, I say around like six, seven years old will go way back. And my uncle was actually one of the very first tribute artists around. And uh, his name is uh, David Anthony. And he was a very one of the very first tributes to Engelbert Humperdinck. Mm-hmm. And I got the bug from that. He used to play some of the places in Vegas, and he played all over the cruise ships. And I, uh, I actually started listening to Engelbert before anything else. And then once I was introduced to Sinatra, which was from my grandmother and my papa and my mom, um, it just, I just, it just, it was a natural fit, as you could say. Um, and it's just, it grabs you just like his, you know, he just, you put on any song from Frank Sinatra and it just every, there's something about the music that just grabs your, your heart and your soul in it. And that's what it did to me. And I just stuck with that since literally the age of six. And I guess it's one of those things where we didn't grow up in a time, we're not that old, thankfully, (laughs) where (laughs) where you had the big bands and stuff. But you can kind of go back in time because that music, and we'll talk a little about the great American song, but that that music is just incredible and holds strong today. 
It always has. I mean, you, it never dies. Um, as a matter of fact, there's people that come to see us at the show um, when we do the Rat Pack. There's young kids. I mean, I'm talking ages from 18 to 81. And some of the the younger kids, they walk in with fedoras, you know, and, and they walk in with, you know, Sinatra pins or whatever else. And they're literally just starting to get into it, and uh, which which makes me happy because they they – they 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 start they're listening to good music and it doesn't have to be it's not just ballads and it's not just all that type of stuff it's actually you know that that music swings you know and it's still <laughs> yeah. being played today in commercials and TV movies everything I couldn't agree more and you did something that I thought was really cool you know as one of the top tributes you played in Canada with a uh, fifty piece symphonic orchestra that must just be an incredible feeling I would imagine. Correct. Now I was I was contacted by them. I'd say maybe about uh, six six years ago, and I've done several shows with them. And the uh, the conductor is an internationally acclaimed Canadian conductor, and and uh, a very good friend of mine. His name is Boris Brat. And each year they call me up and they like to do different uh, concerts. Well, they want they never did a Sinatra concert, and they they sought me out. They saw a few things on YouTube and they they looked at my credentials from everything else that I've done and they said we'd like to have you come down and perform with the symphony so uh, that was that was a, a while ago and I sold out the very first show that they had and then from there on out every year I was going except for this year obviously because of everything happening I didn't go down but um, yeah it's been a fantastic 50 piece symphony orchestra there's nothing like it I mean you could be on stage with the 12 piece band the 7 piece band and it's just an, an immense rush playing with that many musicians, violins, cellos, basses, harps, you name it, they have it. You know, performing as Sinatra, I would have to think, is an incredible feeling because it's not only the idea that you can sing well, and you can, but you've got to get kind of that whole persona. And his persona, a lot of people like to think they can they can do him and that sort of thing. Yeah. But there's a lot more to it, right? I mean, you got to really. I imagine you've studied quite a bit about his life and kind of the way he approached his craft. Exactly, I've studied the, pretty much everything I can possibly put into my brain uh, about Frank Sinatra, and you know, it's difficult. It's different for me, and I say that because when you come to Las Vegas or anywhere else that there's maybe tribute artists that doing Frank Sinatra, that, you know, they try to get away with it by looking like him. And, you know, I, I, that's the one thing that I don't, that I don't have. I don't look like, I look more like Robert De Niro than I do Frank Sinatra, <laughs> you know? So, you know, it was more or less, I have to work a little bit harder at it if I want to be noticed because it seems that's the way it was going is people, you know, if you looked like somebody, you got that edge and, and all that stuff, but it doesn't happen to be that way because I know a lot of tribute artists that do Frank Sinatra, they look like him and sound nothing like him. Um, so, and, and for me, I had to study the quirks that he had, his movements, you know, and his talking fashion, which, you know, there was a similarity because I'm from the East coast too. So I have some of that dialect that he had singing wise, the phrasing, it wasn't just about singing. It was the phrasing and telling the story like he did, not just singing it and saying, I've got you under my skin. It's like, you know, anybody can do that, but to telegraph the story to each and every person in the audience and have them forget that you look like you don't look like him is is the magic that I like bringing to it because I don't need to look like him. You know, right. I can just do my part and sing the songs and people will they forget about it and they just enjoy what I'm doing. More with singer Chris Jason in just a few moments. Time now for a visit with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. In the mood for a great steak or a spaghetti dinner like he used to get in the nineteen fifties or sixties? 
let's ask Scott why Vegas is the place to get it. There's a lot of places around here, right, where you can get those kind of old meals that maybe the Rat Pack used to eat, you know, places where they have Sherry's Jubilee and Bananas Foster, you know, flaming desserts are hard to find these days. That's true. The flaming desserts, I, that was a great band, by the way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's true. A, a lot of these places like the Golden Steer will do these table side presentations that you really just can't find in the newer places. And there are guys in there that have been doing this stuff for f literally 40 years. And it's still very good quality, pretty good value. And I, I seek them out because I kind of like that old school vibe, that old school service. Another steakhouse is the one at Circus Circus where these guys have just been doing, and they mostly are guys uh, for whatever reason. That's Vegas. Uh, some inherent sexism, uh, but uh, for better or worse. And But these guys have been doing this for year, for decades. So, you know, you got one thing to do. You're going to do it the best, and they. I, I seek those places out. I think they are they are gems in Las Vegas. Thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just a reminder, please visit Vegas Never Sleeps and our great new show, Sports Rock and Tours, online. For the best in Vegas, it's VegasNeverSleeps.com. For great sports interviews, visit SportsRacks, that's spelled R-A-C-X, dot com. You can like both shows on Facebook, and you can follow each program on Twitter. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Ciao, I am Giada Valenti. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To reemerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing VirusSafe Pro, a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy-to-read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com.
Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Chris Jason, who is back on stage with the Rat Pack is Back show at Tuscany's, as well as around town with his solo Sinatra tribute show. And it's kind of interesting how you came to Vegas or how you became a regular here. You were discovered by the late Tony Saka, who was known as the entertainment ambassador of Las Vegas. We had him on the show a couple times. Right. A guy that had a real uh, eye for talent, and, and especially I think he understood what worked in Las Vegas. So that's quite a compliment to be kind of taken by the hand by a Tony Saka to come and stay in Vegas, and you've loved it ever since. Uh, you know, uh, my first time in Las Vegas, and I, I was asked to come to Las Vegas in 2015 um, by the, the uh, Italian-American club in Rhode Island. And I'm very good friends with all the boys down there, and they, they gave me that slight push you know, we could have sent Chris to Vegas. We could have, they, people could have hear him in Vegas. Well, that got squashed, and something happened, and I wasn't able to go that yet. And uh, the president of the San Gennaro Feast, Anthony Parmesano, um, he he's the one that really he pushed me to get into the show and meet Tony Saka. So 2016 came, make a long story short. And I, I got there, and, um, you know, I, I met Tony for the first time, and he put me on a 4 o'clock slot. Now, mind you, the, the, you know, there's no one there at 4 o'clock. It's, it's just the band and sausage and peppers. That's all that's there. <laughs> so I asked him, I said, you know, Tony, I said, I never, I never met the guy before. So I, I, I said, Tony, I said, there's no, there's no one here. And he says, uh, you know, don't worry about it. People will be coming through. They'll be hearing you. Don't worry about it. People will know who you are as soon as you open your mouth, Chris. And I'm like, okay. So I sang for 45 minutes and no one there, <laughs> like at all. But little did I know, I was actually being listened to by some other people and it didn't really matter if there was people watching me in the audience. It was the heirs that were listening to me backstage. So uh, it was Tony Saka. He he called up Dick Feeney, and they um, Dick Feeney had come down to see me two months later when I did the second San Gennaro Feast. Shook his hand, a very nice gentleman, and um, he thought I was lip-syncing to the Sinatra CDs while he was in the parking lot. Um, he said, you got to be lip-syncing. I said, no, it is me. Wow. And he was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, so he gave me his email. He emailed me back, and we did some correspondence via email. And uh, the next thing I know, he's flying me down to Vegas to audition for the Rat Pack. It is fantastic. And we mentioned it before, but I want to get on a little more detail with you now. The Great American Songbook, what is yeah. it about that music that just seems to – go on and on and people love it and you can see people like paul mccartney and rod stewart mm -hmm. all want to sit there and put and sing the same music so is it just the is it the the music is it the lyrics what is it about that music that's just so uh powerful it's timeless uh and it back then and even now i mean songs that are, are continually added to the Amer great american songbook but the original stuff that's in there the, the tommy dorsey's and the you know and uh, you know Nelson Riddle and all that stuff. It's it's the words meant something back then. There were actual lyrics. You can understand what they were saying. They meant something to people. It wasn't just words written down on paper. That you know that were, there was no swearing. There was no nothing. It was there were love songs. There was swing songs and happy songs. And you know you even got people like Lady Gaga. You know obviously doing the you know the songs with Tony Bennett. You know it's mm -hmm. everybody's inspired. You know uh, Adam Levine from Maroon Five. You know, he, they did all, they all were part of that 100th anniversary for Sinatra when he turned 100. 
you know, and it, they all did a part of that great American songbook. It's it's the songs that they mean something to people, you know, and uh, they and they still do. Going back from, I mean, Jesus, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, you can ask anybody. Somebody knows something. Fly me to the moon. So, in anything. Somebody knows something from the Great American Songbook. I don't care who you are. Exactly. And well, and you know, you do this tribute act with Frank, but regarding Frank Sinatra, and Sinatra has a heck of a long uh, career from the early yeah. days where he was a true crooner and had right. w- the first person to really have women screaming in the, in the <laughs> aisles and so forth, all the way through the swing days and even in his later career. Do you try to find all those times, or are you just trying to uh, match him up and in, in doing it at one level? I hope that makes sense you know what i'm saying uh, yeah and you know what i i'm not uh, when i say when you say match up to him i mean there's only there's only one frank I, I think what i'm doing is just trying to keep his the spirit the legacy and the, the music alive of what he brought to people what he brought into people's hearts their homes their lives and um you know if i can do that part to keep that music alive and have that essence on stage and have people say, wow, he reminds me of Frank Sinatra when he did this and when he sang this and when he talked like this and when he said this joke and we did this thing. That's what I want from it. It's very, it's very fulfilling for me to do that on stage and jump into his shoes because I don't really consider myself a, a tribute act to the, to the fact of saying, you know, I'm going on stage and I'm, I'm, I am Frank Sinatra. I'm myself portraying Frank Sinatra and I'm doing it to the best of my ability but I'm not impersonating him. I've always sang like that. And if it sounds similar to Frank, then uh, and that's great. And I've been given a gift. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. That, what that's, a compliment. That's all I care about. You got to see him. Chris Jason, if you like Sinatra music, you will love Chris Jason. Uh, now, first of all, let's tell them where you're going to be. Okay, the Tuscany, every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday over at the Tuscany with the Rat Pack is back. And that's always a fun show. Correct. That's going to be in the Florentine room. So when you walk into the Tuscany, you want to go walk over to the escalators. They bring you upstairs and you'll see the Florentine room. There'll be all signs of the Rat Pack. And it's myself as Frank Sinatra and the incomparable Mr. Drew Anthony, who's played Dean Martin in Vegas for years. And he's amazing. And we also have Kyle Diamond as Sammy Davis Jr. And we have special guests like Joel Rigetti, um, who's also a Vegas icon showgirl in Las Vegas. She's also part of the show and was also a seven piece big band as well. Yeah, and it's kind of fun to sit there and just kind of go back in time and really when I mean, that was an act, you know, a lot of big stars come into Vegas and we love that, but there was nothing like the excitement in town and boy, it, it was just the hottest thing in the United States back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. It was a, it was like a bomb going off. It's, that's what it was like. It was like a, just a bomb of energy. I mean, they filmed Ocean's Eleven down here in between, in between going to do the shows at the Sands. You know, every time they did the show, and now that sand show was like a week long sometimes, and they would go in between, and they'd shoot the scenes for Ocean's Eleven, go right back to the sands and do a show, go back to Ocean's Eleven, do a scene, go back to the sands. It was crazy, and everybody knew when they were here because it was one big, one big party. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And also, in addition to that, you're also, uh, you've got some dates around town. Uh, where are some of the places we can look for you uh, doing solo, Sinatra? Okay, well, I will be uh, at Prosecco which is in Boulder City. Um, that is uh, this Wednesday, tomorrow, and I'm also going to be at Prosecco from 6 to 9, uh, the 18th and the 25th of November as well. Um, those are all Wednesdays. And um, I'm also going to be debuting at the, um, the Ritzy St- uh, Sterling Club in the Sterling Room, and that is this Friday from 6 to 9, and it's a dinner-slash-show, and they're really excited to have me there. I don't think they've had a Sinatra thing there, 
at, at all since, since in, in, until they have me. So this, they're really looking forward to it this Friday at the Sterling Club. It's a great place to see entertainment, and uh, so is Prosecco's, too. So yeah, lots of opportunities. Chris Jason, best of luck. Hope to have you on again soon. I really appreciate it, my friend. Have a wonderful day. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports and Tours. Today's conversation features a great American sports hero, Mike Ruzioni, the captain of the 1980 U.S. Olympic ice hockey team that shocked the world. We're really excited about Sports and Tours. Beginning in December, we will add an additional hour, and we have a great new website. Go to sportsracksracx.com. On the web, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's Sports and Tours, which is next. In the meantime, a reminder, Vegas never sleeps. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right, down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. Do you believe in miracles? You remember that line from Al Michaels as the U.S. ice hockey team in 1980 somehow defeated the Soviet Union team, which was a real David and Goliath story. Have you ever been involved with a miracle? Have you seen a miracle? Well, if you're a sports fan... When you hear the word miracle, you're thinking 1980 United States Olympic hockey team. No question about it. And we've got the captain of that team with us, Mike Uruzioni, who is the author of a great book you need to read. And we're going to talk about that in detail. It's called The Making of a Miracle, the untold story of the captain of the 1980 gold medal winning U.S. Olympic hockey team. Mike, what a moment, you know, beating the Soviet Union and so forth. When it happened, what did it mean to you? What, were you, what was going on in your head? Because I got to think at that time, you probably weren't thinking necessarily about world affairs and so forth, but really the idea is, my God, we beat the Russians. Yeah, you know, I mean, we went into the Olympic Games uh, with the hope and dreams of winning a medal. We didn't know what was going to happen. And I hate to be cliche, but uh, it really was one game at a time, and, and that's how we approached things. And next thing you knew, we were in a position to, to play for a medal, and that was you know, beating the Soviets and then beating Finland on Sunday. So, you know, you're kind of in a little cocoon out there in Lake Placid. We had no idea the world was watching. I mean, we were clueless uh, regarding that. Uh, we weren't allowed to talk to the media, so we didn't know what was being written or said about us. Uh, we were just kind of just playing hockey. And then then when it ended and, and, you know, we got out into the countryside and 
realized, wow, this this thing was pretty big. So we, we were we were totally surprised by the reaction that uh, the country and the world had. Well, I remember when it happened, and I was a big hockey fan going into it, so I was just kind of curious what was going to happen. Then I remember you beat Czechoslovakia, and I go, wow, that's really something. i got to keep an eye on it. And it was fun to watch friends and so forth get into it as it went along. And then the, the game with Russia, everybody expected the, the big, huge defeat. You know, how bad is it going to be? Can they at least stay close? And you guys became folk heroes after that. And I guess to be captain of that team, that's got to be particularly an honor because captain's a big deal in the world of hockey. Well, you know, I, I, it was a great honor for me, but I've always said, and I've said it from day one, I was a captain amongst captains. You know, there were 20 players in that rock locker room, and, and I believe uh, 17 of them were captains of their either high school uh, and some were even captains of their college team. So when you surround yourself with not only great players but great people, I think it makes you appreciate uh, the fact that uh, I was in that locker room and had the honor of being a captain of that team. You grew up with a strong family. Do you think that kind of helped having that experience to go from that into this uh, amateur hockey team, that those family values sort of kick in and kind of help drive you through all this? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that was something that my dad and mom always, and, and aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody, you know, the, that I grew up with uh, instilled in me. That, you know, the work ethic that you have to have to be successful. Success doesn't come easy. You know, I saw my dad work three jobs and mother took care of six kids, so... Uh, I understood the values and important values of hard work and determination. And again, and I'll say it like I said it earlier, I was fortunate to play on a team that guys had those same kind of values. We we really were a work ethic kind of a hockey team. Herb, Herb used to call us a lunch pail and hard hat group of guys, and, and that's what we were. We all came from working class families and understood the values of work and, and, and being a good teammate, being a good person. The whole story of the team is just so incredible. I mean, not only Coach Brooks, but the kind of mismatched team that was put together. They turned out to be this great team. You know, as this has gone on and the myth has grown and the uh, kind of the fantasy of this has uh, kind of taken over as people think about it, how has the significance of what happened then affected you? I mean, obviously, you've had, you've had people that want to hear this story for the rest of your life. It, 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 it's given me uh, opportunities to do things that I probably never would have imagined I would have been able to do. People that I've met, states that I've been to, uh, companies that I've spoken to, uh, presidents that I've met, some of the greatest athletes in the world, entertainers. Uh, I've, I've been to some amazing places, and a lot of it, all of it, obviously, was because of what happened in 1980. So it, it's given me an opportunity to do a lot of different things that I never would have imagined I could have done, but yet... I pretty much still stayed focused and grounded. I, you know, I live in the hometown that I grew up in. I, my wife, uh, we have, we're celebrating our 38th wedding anniversary. Uh, we, we dated for 12 years, so I've known her since she was 15. So, you know, my, my life has changed in a lot of ways, but uh, I still think, uh, I, you know, I'm where I belong at home with my family and friends. You talk about work ethic and that kind of background. It seems like the team kind of had to have that to have any chance at all of going as far as you did. I mean, it, it, it only would take that just putting together even an all-star team at that time from the NHL wouldn't necessarily have been able to do what you guys did. Yeah. And, and I, I think Herb was a big part of that as well. Uh, you know, he put this whole program together. He decided how we were going to play, when we were going to play, uh, what we were going to do. He, he picked the players. He selected the guys. He molded us into an awfully good hockey team. And, and I think that's the thing that kind of got lost a little is we, we were a lot better than people thought. And, you know, we had some players that went on and had great NHL careers. So uh, although nobody looked at our team as, as being a talented team, I, I think when the smoke cleared at the end, uh, uh, we were a lot more talented than people realized. 
the game, the North American hockey type style of game was a lot different than the European and Russian style. And that was part of what made Herb so special, right? He decided to attack that right from the start. So you guys maybe attacked that world stage different than any other team from the North American side would. Yeah, we, we totally changed the way we played the game. I mean, he, Herb felt we couldn't compete against the Europeans playing North American type of hockey, and he wanted to take a blend of the North American game and the blend of the European game and combine it. And he decided that we were going to go to Lake Placid and beat the Europeans at their own game. And, uh, you know, we were able to do that because we trained together for six months. We, you know, that style was inbred in us. We all we changed the way we played. We all played a different style of hockey when we were in college, and, and Herb had the, the brilliance of, of changing the way the game had to be played. And it's, you know, when, when I watch the NHL today, although the players are a lot more better now than they were in 1980, but we were playing the European style of hockey that you see in pro hockey today. So Herb 40 years ago was way ahead of the, the curve. Yeah, and did that take a, a lot of adjustment for you guys? Because you weren't used to playing that. Was it one of those things that, thank God you had all that time to be together as a team because you couldn't have done that in a few weeks? No, we, you know, if, if we had done it like prior Olympic teams, you know, you practice for two weeks and go to the Olympic Games, it wouldn't have worked. So I think the six months really helped us. But it was amazing how quickly we picked up what he was trying to do. And part of that reason was, you know, predominantly most of the team was guys from Minnesota, and nine of them had played under Herb at the University of Minnesota. So they had known kind of how they were going to play in the style because that's what the University of Minnesota was doing back in that era. So. Uh, for, for some of us, it was a change, but it was a fun change. Change, change can be fun. Change can be exciting. And, we, you know, we grabbed it right into it and enjoyed it. You know, Herb was a completely different type of guy. And, I mean, I remember when those movies came out and so forth and the portrayals of him, they made him to be a pretty tough character. W was he a strange guy like he's portrayed in there? And <laughs> <laughs> he was, uh, you know what, that's how coaches coached in the 70s, stuff. So. My college hockey coach, my high school football coach, high school baseball coach, high school hockey coach, were all demanding, you know, and they challenged you every day. And Herb was just like that. Herb, Herb demanded a lot out of you. And, and, you know, there were a lot of times we didn't like Herb, but there was never once a time where we didn't respect him. And I think that was the big thing we had. We had tremendous respect for him, and we, we had tremendous trust in what he was doing. We believed in what he was doing. And when you, when you trust your coach... You respect your coach. You don't care how demanding and hard he is because you know he's doing what's right for the team. We'll be back with the captain of the 1980 U.S. hockey team, Mike Ruzioni, in just a moment. We're excited. In December, we're going to add an additional hour of Sports Rock and Tours, and we have a new website that you can visit today. Go to SportsRacks, that's spelled R-A-C-X, dot com, on the web, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You're listening to Sports Rock and Tours with Stephen Maggi. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. 
Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rockin' Tours. You're listening to Mike Ruzioni, the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey star that scored the winning goal in the famous Miracle on Ice game. So this long period of time preparing for this is really interesting because people forget you guys played at Madison Square Garden and they beat you up pretty bad. Yeah, we lost 10-3 to to them. Um, it was our last game right before the Olympic Games. And maybe it was a good game for us to play. You know, I look back at that game and I, we, first of all, we were, we're nowhere near the same team that played the Soviets, you know, 12 days later or 10 days later. Uh, our mindset was different. Our confidence was different. And I think the game in Madison Square Garden, you know, for the first period, we just stood around and watched. I think we were losing six to nothing right away. So I think a lot of guys had one foot in the locker room and one foot in Lake Placid. So, uh, you know, it was a game that we got trounced pretty good. But the other side of that coin was we never talked about that game again. It was never brought up. It was never discussed. It, uh, it was like, like it never happened. Well, it had to be a little scary because this was a team that the Soviet Union that were beating NHL teams when they'd have these exhibitions and so forth. So you know these guys are really, really good at a world-class level, and yet you believed in each other. And was Brooks really concerned after this? Did, did he talk, or did he just take it as another game and move on? I think he took it as another game, and let's move on and go to Lake Placid and compete for the real deal, you know, the real tournament. So. Uh, like I said, we we never talked about that game again. Uh, and yet going in the Olympic Games, we never talked about the Soviets. The, the only time we talked about the Soviets was the night before when we were getting ready to play them. Uh, and then after we beat them, they were never discussed again. The next thing was we had to play Finland. So, you know, people remember one game, but, uh, you know, I remember how important Sweden was, how important Czechoslovakia was, how important West Germany was, and clearly how important Finland was. Because if we don't beat Finland, we don't win a gold medal. We might not win a medal. So who cares about the Soviet game if you don't win the whole thing? Exactly. Well, going into it then, how much did you guys really believe? I mean, were you thinking, gee, it'd be great to get a silver or a bronze? Or it was like, no, no, we're in this all the way. I, you know, Because people question that, and I, I got to think you believe you can win. But deep down, was there this idea, hey, if we can just get to the medals, we'll be, we'll be happy? Well, you know, I think as an athlete, first of all, if you think you're going to lose, you probably will. And we went into that game, you know, we knew it was going to be difficult. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew we had to play well. Things had to fall into place the way they did. Uh, Jimmy played extremely well. We needed that to happen. Uh, the game pretty much went the way we, we needed it to go. If they scored five goals, we weren't scoring six. So I think our team defense and the way we played, especially the last 10 minutes. So, so again, going into the game, you're nervous, you're anxious, you're curious. And in the back of your mind, you know, you know how difficult it's going to be. But like I said, if you think you're going to lose, you probably will. And uh, yeah. we went out there with the mindset, let's play the game and let's see what happens. And I'm just thinking of those games. First of all, the game with the Soviet Union. You had to feel, once you got past that first period, and like, okay, we're, we're in this, and you got to feel stronger and stronger. And then your your goal was one of the great moments in, in hockey, uh, well, in, in all of U.S. Olympic history, because you could just feel then like, hey, this could happen. Well, the, yes, and I think there were big goals scored throughout the game. You know, Mark Johnson scored with no time left on the clock, one second left to go on the clock at the end of the first period. And we didn't play very well, but instead of being down 2-1, to one, we're tied 2-2. Two to two. 
and, and, and as you do when you play big games, you, you know, you, you don't play 60 minutes at once. You play, you know, five minute, 10 minute shifts. And, you know, you know, after five minutes, the game, we're, we're down a goal. After 20 minutes, we're tied. After, after 25 minutes, you know, we're down a goal. After 30 minutes, we're down only one. After you know, 35 minutes, we're tied. So, you know, you, you kind of played it in increments like that. And, Again, the game stayed the way we needed it to stay. They never got too far ahead of us, and we were able to, you know, challenge and bounce back and keep ourselves in the game. And then the next uh, day for the uh, gold medal, you got behind early, but uh, I-, I imagine that by that point the confidence level was so high that it's like, okay, this, this, let's just move on. We can do this. Well, you know, we were trailing. We were trailing Sweden. We were trailing Czechoslovakia. We were trailing Norway. We were trailing West Germany by two goals. We were trailing the Soviets, and now we were trailing Finland. So uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, a scenario that we hadn't had before. And I think the strength of our team was, and I think it was Robbie McClanahan that said it, was we outscored our opponents, I think, 16-3 to in the third period of the whole tournament. And that's, that's a great tribute to, to Herb and, and the conditioning and the speed of our team to, to be trailing and still be able to come back at a young age. You know, our team average, was, average age was only 21 and a half, 22 years old. Heck, today... That would be the youngest team in college hockey. So we had a lot of youth, but we had a lot of belief. You had a lot of toughness. Now, your own toughness, does this come back from when you were a kid having to wear your sister Connie's white skates? And <laughs> You know, that almost reminds me of a boy named Sue. It's kind of a tough way, but you get tough. <laughs> well, I think you grow up in an environment, you know, which is a, you know, a, a working-class family. You do get tough. You, you have the inner strength. So, you know, as you said, in the house I lived in, there were... You know, there were 15 kids in the house, and, you know, we, we, we relied on each other. We depended on each other, you know, through, through very difficult times as, as children growing up. We didn't have any money, but we had a great love and, and support, and I think that makes you stronger. When you went to college, you actually played against Herb Brooks, right, his uh, University of Minnesota team. Uh, what was that experience like? Because that was kind of like your first taste to him. Yeah, we, uh, well, that didn't go very well because we had a bench-clearing brawl with the, with the University of Minnesota. And, in the semifinals of the national championship. And Herb, Herb didn't sit very well with the Boston University players. My first experience with him was not was not a good one, but he, he made up for it later. Well, and then even trying to make the Olympic teams, people always wonder about that. And in those times, they were going to put together this great amateur team, which they did, obviously. But uh, how, how tough were those tryouts? And do you remember? I mean, I, I would imagine once you're in that thing, it's all focusing. Like, you want that real bad. Yeah, you know, I, I went into the tryout with the hope and belief that I, you know, I could make the team. There was no guarantees. Herb didn't say you're definitely going to be on the team. I know, I know some players were, were, were guaranteed they were going to be there. And clearly, you know, Mark Johnson was going to be there and a bunch of the other guys. But for someone like myself, I went in there with the, you know, mindset of if I play well, I'll make the team. If I don't play well, I'm not going to make the team. So again, I think you go in believing in yourself and the abilities and talents that you have. You want to showcase them to the coach, and I was able to do that. You had a chance. You could have gone into the NHL and tried to get into that whole thing, and uh, you decided to go for the Olympic team. If you had to make the same decision today, um, would you do that, even if you could have maybe gotten a career like Mark Johnson or Ken Murrow or some of those guys did afterwards? I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything. So, uh, you know, I, I went into the Olympics with the, with, with the thought and mindset of, of being an Olympian and representing my country. I didn't think of the NHL. I didn't even think about the NHL really after the Olympics. So that was an opportunity for me to do something special, and I was able to, to, to do that. Once this was over and you went back home and you realized that everybody was going crazy, you know, you said before that you guys just didn't know it. 
it had to feel good, right? I mean, regardless of how you felt about world politics or anything, it was just a really good time for the country. It needed kind of a boost at that time because uh, kind of the morale as a whole was down. And I guess it's got to be a wonderful feeling to know, hey, I did a little bit to pick up my country's spirits. Yeah, it was, uh, again, an incredibly proud moment for, 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 like I said, everybody, my teammates, myself. Uh, you know, we didn't know that we would touch so many lives in such a positive way. And we found out, obviously, at that time, the country was looking for something to feel good about. And it happened to be us. It happened to be a, a group of kids who I think, you know, who, who, who what makes this country so great? You know, hardworking kids who, who believe in America and believe in values and believe in teamwork and believe in all the things that are so important in life. And I think people saw that. They they saw in us the neighbor, the boy next door. You know, I think people related to our team and enjoyed the fact that we were that type of a team to kind of show the world that what makes this country so great is the work and the effort that people put into it. You know, when you guys got on the victory stand, too, there wasn't one person that said, oh, that's some sort of PR move or anything. I remember people felt the genuineness of this. Was that something you guys just decided to do, to all get up there together while the national anthem was playing? Yeah, what what it was was we, we did the, you know, after we beat Finland to win the gold medal, they told us the ceremony was going to be, each guy would come up to the podium, and then, Mike, you'd be the last guy, and you'll stand up there, and the anthem will be played. And, so I stood there while the anthem was being played, and my teammates were on the red line. And then when the anthem was over, uh, they were looking at me, and I was looking at them. It was like nobody told us what to do after. They were kind of walking towards me, and that's when I, I called everybody up, and uh, we all fit in that podium. Uh, I, the people still can't believe 20 of us fit in that little podium, but we did. <laughs> I, I don't know if we'd fit today, but I think we, we, we did then. The book is The Making of a Miracle, The Untold Story of the Captain of the 1980 Gold Medal Winning U.S. Olympic Hockey Team. Mike Ruzioni, thanks so much. Best of luck to you. Thanks for having me, and be safe. Don't forget to visit SportsRacks, RACX.com, home of our podcast, blog, and lots of new stuff. And please follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Magic. Trevor Daly safely up the boards and out through center. Kunitz onto the puck again. In front, Brian Ross, backhand shot, he scores! Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.